This is Take Flight with Mark Whittle. Welcome to Take Flight. I'm Mark Whittle, former city worker turned performance coach. And this is your place for inspiration and education on ways to optimise your performance and find your purpose. We're a $9 million company. In five years, we've gone from almost zero to a billion. We overtook Nike, we overtook Adidas, and Reebok become number one. What was your favorite part of the journey? I enjoyed the challenge of getting into the US market. My new shoes, Reebok I had at least six failures. Take a risk. And that's what entrepreneurs do. Was there ever a point when you felt that you landed at a destination? Only when we, uh, we became corporate. When we were about a $4 billion business. At that point, I retired. Cabin crew, passengers, prepare for takeoff. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. At last, we've got together. Long last. Oh, we was it three? Three reasons. Uh, yeah, this is third time, I think it is, yes. But uh, we're, we're very busy. You're very busy. Yep. So things like that happen. Plus COVID. Plus COVID. That gets in the way. And on holidays occasions. and travel. And holidays <laughs> and whatever, yeah. And we're, we're traveling an awful lot, so it's a great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really, really honored actually to be sat with you. So um, better explain actually for people watching on, on YouTube uh, and if you're listening just for you to visualize, we're sat in my my cousin's in the boardroom at Wigan Warriors. He's the head head coach here and he's, uh, he's booked the room for us to sit and record this podcast today so we can see the training pitch out the window. That's right, yeah. Outside of us. <clears throat> I've, not, I've never been to a match at Wigan. I mean, and yet we used to supply Wigan with all the uh, rugby boots. Yeah. The whole thing and for many years. But we used to deal with Oliver Summers, who is the, used to be, I don't know if he's still, is he still there, Oliver Summers? I'm not sure. <clears throat> he used to be in Main Street. Okay. And uh, he was this Wigan sort of local sports outfitter. Mm-hmm. And we used to supply him with all the uh, all the rugby boots for we. In fact, we, we supplied, I would say, 90, 95% of rugby league with the boots, with Reebok boots, yes. Wow. In those days, way back, probably in the 60s, that would be. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, 60s and maybe early 70s. But, yeah, uh, amazing. Mm. I mean, there's going to be so many stories like that that come up today, I'm, I'm sure, so I'm very excited ah, to get into it. Well, I mean, we're, we're in, in our local territory. You yeah. Know? We're, we're, we're next to what used to be Reebok Stadium, yeah. just up the road yeah. there. By design, um, we came up here to see you in your neighborhood by design. <laughs> Keep you local. Right. Um, but yeah, on, I'm so honoured. I was saying this before we clicked to record. I absolutely loved reading your book, Shoemaker. So thank you Great. for writing that. That was amazing. Tell everybody that that's what you did. You read the book, you got the book, and they must get the book. Because they must. Uh, absolutely. That's our, our mission now. Mm-hmm. We're on a mission. Right? We were on a mission to build Reebok one time. Now we're on a mission to sell Shoemaker. Yeah, well, I can't recommend it enough. I, I loved reading all through your story. And so much of it surprised me. I think a lot of you know the Adidas or Nike stories are out there. And, right, and a lot of this was a surprise, so it's, it was great. Great, um, and I've tried. I said as well, I've tried to ask you questions you've not been asked before. Okay, well, so here you go. I tend not to listen to um, guests on podcasts before I speak with them, but there was one that I listened to, right, uh, with uh, Ed Milet that you did. So I went. You've done a lot. You've done a lot. <laughs> I know. It's Ed, do you remember Ed is the American guy who uh, you did a remote one? I'm not sure if you're familiar, but yeah, he, we. I went over to America to record one with him. This is many right. years ago okay. at the earlier stage of this podcast. So right. uh, I did make an exception and listen to that one, which was great. <laughs> Good. My first question might be a little bit of a str- strange one to start here. Okay. 
I mentioned to you as well, I'm, I'm a coach and a lot of the sort of patterns that I see, well, there are, there are patterns, of course, it's human behavior. So you see the same things over and over and over again. Yeah, right. One of the things that I try to instill, but I'm only 34, so I, you know, it's not proven, but I believe it's true, mm-hmm. is that we have to enjoy the process. And, and, and people talk about, you know, enjoy the process. There's no destination. So right. the first thing I wanted to ask you, given that you've been through that, building one of the biggest globally recognized brands in the world right. on reflection now, was there ever a point when you felt that you landed at a destination? Did, did, you, did it ever feel like that? No, I don't think so. I, I like the challenges of growing the business. And only when we, uh, we became corporate, when we were about a $4 billion business, at that point, I retired. <clears throat> because for me, uh, we were corporate then. There's a lot of lawyers, a lot of accountants, and a lot of people in between. And you're just running a machine. Uh, not the same excitement. So that's when I retired. Uh, and, I, and I guess that's the point when, yeah, I did probably stop enjoying it at that point because uh, there didn't seem to be, uh, you didn't seem to be making the progress you do when, you, when you're small mm. and, and you're fighting and you're trying to get there. You know, those are the times when it's exciting. All the problems, going through those problems. So uh, by the time I retired, I, I, put, I put America on and I needed America because that would build everything else came from America. Once you get to America, you've really got the rest of the world quite easy. But I'd put another 30 countries on. So I've been flying around and putting countries on as distributors. I've been doing that. And uh, so by the time I retired, I was uh, probably flying around the world three times every year. And I'd be going to airports, get picked up by a limousine. I'd be driven to the best hotel. And we'd be dining at the best restaurants. And you you begin to think, well, what's this about? Because I'm just talking now. I'm not, uh, we were talking, how was your business doing? But I wasn't part of the business then. I was more an ambassador. And just, uh, so that's why I got out of it. But now, of course, I've got a new challenge, which is good, which is the book. Yeah. <clears throat> Having written the book, you know, I think, well, no point in writing the book if uh, nobody's going to read it. So <laughs> let's get a challenge out here. Let's see if we can get it to a bestseller. <laughs> and so that's what we're doing now. We're, and uh, <clears throat> the book in itself, I, I wrote it because, uh, well, when I retired and I'm reading Wikipedia and Google and they're telling me how Reebok started. And there's also a photograph of Joe Foster. And I have no idea who that photograph, who he was. Not at all. The stories were wrong. The photograph was wrong. Uh, and I guess that sort of threw a challenge out to me. Better write the story and get it straight. Tell the story that yes. deserves to be told. That's right. So that's interesting you talk about that. This podcast is called Take Flight. It's about the leap of faith into mm-hmm. or actually, in fact, out of the thing. So either into the thing that you're passionate about and your purpose or out of the thing that you aren't passionate about. You've almost done both then. So you, you jumped out of your family business yes. to create your own business, your own like shoe manufacturer and everything that came along with that oh, yes, company. Yeah, yeah. And then at the other end of the, the journey, you you exited out of it because it had gone beyond and been the corporate. It, on, on reflection, what was your favorite part of the journey? Was it the come up or was it the point where you landed US? Was it, what comes to mind? I. I enjoyed the challenge of getting into the U.S. market. I mean, that, that was probably the most enjoyable part of it. it was, uh, 
how do you get into it? How do you break into this market? How, we, how do we do it? And we, I had at least six failures. You know, the attempts. I mean, I, I first went to America in 1968. That was to the Chicago and SGA, uh, National Sporting Goods Association of America. That was like a conference, isn't it? No, it's where all the manufacturers all around the world, they come and they show the goods yeah. and people come in. All the buyers from the different sports outfitters, they would come. In fact, buyers from around the world used to come. It was so big. Um, and they, they came to see what's new. And that's why it was pretty obvious. You got into America, the rest of the world, was, they were looking in and they wanted a piece of it. I mean, when we really got big in America, everybody wanted to distribute Reebok. So going around the world, putting on the rest, uh, another 30, that was easy. <laughs> they were coming to me. I, I didn't have to go to them. I just had to select. But that was a nice part of the job. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the part of the story that jumped out to me, again, you, you know, you put two sentences there together as to break the US, and then when we did it, it was easy after that point. But it took, can you remind me, was it a decade or longer? Or 15 years, something? It was 11 years. 11 years. Yeah, We, we got in there in 1979. I'd, I've been going since 1968. So, yeah, it took those 11 years to uh, to get in. But, you know, we were lucky. Uh, I, I guess if you're there long enough, the timing is right. You know, if, if you say timing is so important, as it was for us to get into America, I guess 11 years gives you a lot of time to get it right. And uh, it, it really worked for us because running became something big in America. Running was a, a category that started with very small but soon grew. I mean, you've got, in those days, you're 350 million Americans. Um, and probably 10%, eventually, of 10% of those were just getting a pair of shoes on and going running. And then what came along then were 10Ks, 5Ks, half marathons. So there were events. And people were enjoying those events. They didn't have to be part of a club or anything. You could just enter an event. So people just got shoes for the entering the event. And Runner's World, Runner's World was a magazine that grew with it. I don't know, I think Runner's World helped the, the running category to really grow. Mm. And it helped Nike, because Nike were in America. So it helped them. And uh, Runner's World started off as a single page, which just told people where the next race was and sort of uh, winners of other races. So people would get that. By 1975, this was a glossy magazine, 50, 60 pages, whatever it was, and it covered the whole of the States. You know, wherever you were, they'd tell you where the local events were and uh, who the winners were. And then there'd be stories in between. Um, and advertising, of course, for shoes. And we, we did advertising there. Um, but uh, because that grew, and I say you've got 350 million Americans, if 10% are running, that's 35 million are running. And Bob Anderson, Bob Anderson, who actually published The Runner's World, he, I mean, he was such a big name in, at that time. He, he could tell the people which was the number one shoe. And, of course, it was Nike, because Nike was just down the road at uh, Beaverton from where uh, in Los Altos, uh, near San Francisco, that um, Bob Anderson was. So, yeah, but the problem is that uh, Phil Knight couldn't deliver, because of your 35 million runners that were participating, probably 10% of those, three and a half million, oh, we'll have that shoe. But Phil Knight's importing this shoe from uh, Japan, and they couldn't turn up that. Was production. this when it was Tiger still, or was this not? Uh, Onitsuka, Tiger, yeah. yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. That, that was their brand, Honey Suka's brand. He was working with them and they were producing. Well, in fact, he, he started off, Phil Knight started off as uh, Blue Ribbon Sports as a distributor for Tiger. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, it's only when Tiger wouldn't listen to him and they wanted some different changes. They decided, well, make us this shoe and then they became Nike. It became a competitor, in fact. And uh, his story is pretty good. I don't know if you've read uh, Shoe Dog. I've read Shoe Dog as yeah. well. Yeah, brilliant. <clears throat> yeah. As well. A different story. We, we, I mean, it does, I've read it as well, and our, our stories do almost sort of follow a similar path. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, personally, as an English person, it was amazing reading yours because that, that breaking America was so much more powerful from an English person. And the whole, the heritage of having the great British flag, the Union Jack on the shoe and all that. I love that part of the story. So, yeah, it's, it's funny that, uh, yeah, that was Paul Feynman. I mean, we, well, we still have, I think on, on the shoes in today, we've got the Starcrest, yeah. which is all little segments. <laughs> and Paul said to me, and I can remember the conversation was out there, Joe, he said, that it looks a bit like the Union Jack. And I said, yeah, it's not far away, is it? Mm. No. And he said, why don't we use the Union Jack? Instead of, he said, because it's going to cost us millions to get everybody to recognize the Starcrest. So why don't we put the Union Jack on there? He said, because everybody in America knows the Union Jack. Mm. It surprised me a little when he said everybody in America knows the Union Jack, but uh, yeah, I thought, okay. And I said, we can do that, but we'll have problems in the UK because putting the Union Jack on a shoe you make in Korea is is not exactly looked upon by the trade unions in the UK as being a good thing. But we did persuade them that uh, all the designs, and we got a royalty off every shoe, and this came into the UK, so. That's amazing. And just for context, for listeners who haven't read the book yet, Paul Fireman is the guy you found in the US that did all yeah. the distribution and then ran the, the US part of the business. Just before I, I ask you another question, more on about competition and, and Nike and, and Adidas, I want to just go back to something you said about I enjoyed the part of the journey most when I was trying to break America. What was it that you enjoyed most about it? <clears throat> well, again, it's the challenge. And the so, the so challenge to get into that big market. Because it was it? hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a tough market to get into. You know, we, um, the reason that I first started is that I, I'm reading a magazine in 1968, probably early on, no, probably 1967. I'm reading this magazine. And the government are advertising, you know, we'd like you to export and we will pay for the stand at the NSGA show in Chicago. We'll pay your return airfare and we'll pay 50% of your expenses whilst you're there. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I can't turn that down. That sounds like a good offer. This, this, is, this is the way to get into America. Prior to that, any, any, any sort of suggestion I'd made to the family <laughs> that we should be going trying to get into America was like, it's too expensive. You know, how are you going to do that? You know, but there was no resistance to the fact that the government were paying. <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, and that was the start of it. And then it was a question. And I remember that first time going over. And uh, I went with a friend, Bob Brigham. Brigham, F.E. Brigham. Ellis Brigham. Brigham, you know, yeah. now, yeah. Bob was a good friend. In fact, we made, we made a climbing boot for him. And that's why he was, uh, <clears throat> he, we, we went together. And Bob had a look at the outdoor stores. I had a look at the sports shops. We went to New York first before going on to Chicago. And in Chicago, we had this nice stand. The shoes were out there. And people are coming around. And the buyers saying, oh, this is, guy, this, this is nice. Where do we get these from? And I'm saying England. <laughs> and they said, is that New England? Hmm. Um, no, no, not New England, England. Across the water, you know. 
oh, near London. Yeah, near London. I realized that uh, they wouldn't want to import because all, all they could say is, oh, but when you get them over here, when you get a distributor, uh, you know, we'll obviously try your product. It looks good. So I needed a distributor. Nobody's going to buy out of the UK. Funnily enough, some of the buyers did buy Bob's boot. <laughs> so the outdoor stores were prepared to do that. I think because the outdoor stores bought a lot of ski, ski work from Europe. So they were probably a bit more used to it than the sports stores. The sports stores, no, they, they wouldn't do it. So it was then trying to find a distributor, and that was where, as I say, it had at least six. And uh, one of them I had for four years. He tried that long and that hard, and it still didn't work. <laughs> what was the biggest failure out of those six, do you think? Probably the guy who uh, I spent four years mm. with. Uh, his, his name was Shu Lang. I think his family was sort of a Russian mm -hmm. origins because everybody up there is an Im family's immigrated into, yeah. into America, and I think from Russia. And he tried hard, and uh, it's in the book. I mean, we, like Julie and I, were over there about three, four years ago now, and we called in on uh, his daughter. And Shu Lang, he it kept every bit of correspondence, every bit. With pass backwards and forwards, because in those days you wrote letters, yeah. <laughs> so all this stuff, and they were quite good for the book, because uh, all this backwards and forwards, all the effort we were putting in. So that yeah, you know, it's a pity that, that it didn't work. You know, it was a real shame that that didn't work. But uh, you know, that's part of the part of the experience. What kept you going each time it failed to break the status? I think I think your DNA does that. You're you're either an optimist or you're not. And if an optimist, you know, the glass is always half full. You, you, no, we'll try again. We'll try again. So, I think it was the the knowledge, the excitement that to get into that market. Once we got in there, uh, you could see the rise of Nike. Nike. I mean, they became colossal because they were actually in the market, on the market. You know, and we were trying to get in there from two, three thousand miles away across across the water. And people said, well, why, didn't you, why didn't you go into Europe? Well, the problem with going into Europe was the fact that uh, we, as we know, there's nearly 30 countries, part of Europe, each with a different language, different um, cultures. And so it's, it's not just one market, it's breaking into all those. It's becoming more one market. You know, so that time, time makes that happen. You know, these, everybody travels. And so... Maybe today we might have even tried to get into Europe better mm. because there have been some big exhibition shows in, in Europe. But for me, more or less in America, they all speak English, more or less. <laughs> it's a bit of a different English, but uh, more or less. So the, at least we would be understood. Yeah. And so that was the, the reason for choosing America. Yeah. And I suppose when you say it's DNA, you know, say, when, when I said what kept you going, is that... You, is that born? Is it? Is it born? You were born. I with think the... you have to have a certain. Yeah, I think I think it is. The DNA is part of the family. Whatever you come in, work, work, however you pick it up, you've got to be born with that. Uh, I think I, I, I suppose you know, sometimes it's stupidity. You know, I'm not going to fail. <laughs> mm. No, we, we're going to try again. The market's still there. You know, it's why why think you you've lost it, and so. 
Yeah, and we were doing quite well in in the UK. We were probably the number one athletic company in the UK. Um, we couldn't get into football because football was, even when Jeff and I left the uh, Foster family, football was already in the ownership of Adidas. There already, in fact, probably one of our driving uh, forces to get us out of the Foster family was we needed to compete. We needed to be on the market, and Foster had, had lost that. They did, uh, well, I mean, again, in the book, uh, my father and uncle, they just feuded, they fought, they, they never spoke to each other a good word, and uh, and Jeff and myself, we had to drag them apart on more than one occasion because they were fighting each other. And I, I still don't even know to this day what was the feud about. But no different than Addy Dassler and Rudy Dassler. They were feuding, and but Rudy had the good sense to get out and set up his own factory, Puma. Oh no, the Foster family just kept feuding and fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to get out. <laughs> yeah. How do you do that? You know, they say never work with your family, don't they? <laughs> but you managed to make it a success with your brother and you managed to have the courage to leave your family business when your dad was operating. How did you manage to do that? Yeah. Like emotionally? Well, emotionally it wasn't too bad. I mean, you, you probably have to go back if you can think back to the 1950s, we were just after World War II, and families were different. You know, fathers, they looked after earning the money, and at night, now my father would go to the pub, and mother would bring us up. So we were brought up by mother. Father was a distant figure in many ways. And I mean, now families are much closer. You know, fathers uh, spend much more time with the children. We hardly saw my father. You know, he was either working or he was out with his friends, mates in the local pub. So uh, it, it wasn't too big an emotion, you know. And we would, Jeff and I, we, we could see the family. The, the business was failing. You know, it was just going down. The Adidas were coming in, Puma coming in. They were taking the business. So uh, for us, it was more that, uh, and I remember say, trying to get father Come on, Dad, you've got to do something here. You know, either work together with Bill or work with us and we'll do something else. We'll set up something else. And uh, <clears throat> But he, he just wouldn't do it. What do you think kept him holding on to it? I, I, th I think it was the uh, comfort zone of uh, the fact that, yes, the company was earning, making a living. And uh, <clears throat> whilst, whilst there's still money coming in and he was enjoying life, why, sh why should he think of the future? That he was okay. So I think it was his comfort zone that kept him there. Um, it, it, in many ways, I can look back and be annoyed at the fact that he couldn't see that uh, he wasn't leaving us a good legacy. He was, he was going, in fact, going to leave us with no, no business. Uh, because he, I mean, he said, look, when your uncle's gone and I've gone, you can do what you like with this business, it'll be yours. <clears throat> you know. And the, the guy is uh, well in his fifties, and, uh, and I'm saying, "Look, Dad, we don't want you to go. That's not our plan. Um, but this business will be gone long before you are." And indeed, it did. Two years after Jeff and I had left, uh, Uncle he died, and the business just didn't continue. He couldn't, you know, father couldn't continue the business um, because really he didn't know how to take the business to the next step, and we'd left. So, uh, you know, we were making our own way. But 
I guess we had to do it. Yeah, it was something that we just had to make that decision and go. You said sometimes it's almost like, you know, stupid. You just keep going. But but I, I get the impression from you and, and the energy from you that you would have made it work regardless. No matter what you faced, no matter what came up, you would have made it work. Do you feel like, like no matter what was thrown in front of you, you would have eventually made Reebok what it is? Yeah, because I think we learned some pretty early lessons on how to um, how to change, how to pivot, how to do whatever you need to do. You know, we set up our company as Mercury Sports Footwear, and eighteen months later, we were told to register our name. Our accountant said, "You better register your name," and we couldn't because it was pre-registered by Lords and Delta. They weren't using it, <clears throat> and they offered it to us for a thousand pounds. We didn't have a thousand pounds, and so uh, I'd gone to see a patent agent, and he said, "If you can't buy it, then you've got to find a new name." And uh, I mean, I can tell you the whole story. I can tell you the the point of the story is we had to change our name, so we had to find a way through the problem. Four years into our business, we have a letter from Adidas, well, they're lawyers, because our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar, and. Uh, they, they said, no, this, this is infringing our three-stripe mark. And again, it was, a, oh, what do you do? Well, we actually changed our side stripe. We, we changed it. But, you know, we pinned the letter up on the wall because, well, Adidas know we're here. Adidas find it necessary to write us a letter. So they know we're around. You know, it's like we've achieved something. <clears throat> this, this is not a disaster. We've achieved something, and we just changed our size. So it was a question of when the, the lesson you learn is there will be problems, and uh, the more your head comes over the parapet, the more people want to get at you, and they'll they'll do whatever, and uh, and it becomes a problem. So you learn pretty quickly that a problem is an advantage. It means that you've got an opportunity now to change. You've got an opportunity. Somebody's telling you. Don't do that. So, right, this is an opportunity. So it's looking at problems as opportunities. And, and I think that's what, what happened soon, quite early on in our existence, which meant that, right, we learn how to do this. We, you know, where's the next problem coming from? <laughs> you know, great, good to have a problem because it gives us a, a chance to uh, change, swivel, do whatever it is, and, and improve. And, you know, I say there's no such thing as bad advertising. And there isn't, because if somebody wants to shout at you, it's, you know, the news is getting out, something's getting out. So you change, you, you do things. And uh, <clears throat> take it to your advantage. So uh, that's what uh, really we, uh, you know, and, and I think I, I thrived on that. Yeah, that's brilliant, Joe. I love hearing it. I think so many of us reach problems, and because we've got so much self-doubt and insecurity, we use that as an excuse to say, see, I knew I was right. I'm shit. I can't do this. And, mm -hmm. and it's an easy way to give up. Whereas yeah. how you've explained that by s switching that and seeing it as an opportunity for whatever growth, imp personal improvement, business improvement, that means that you can, <clears throat> you can push through and you find resistance. Yeah, well, I, I think that's, uh, that's where the DNA comes in. I think, I think you have to have that sort of spirit because uh, I know, and I know a lot of people who every time they're talking to you, they're talking about the problems as a problem instead of talking about opportunity. And, oh, yeah, that must have been a bit difficult when you got that. Yeah, but what a chance. What an opportunity. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and I think that is DNA. 
Okay. Obviously, we learn that um, from our DNA, we had the uh, thinking we could do something, but we learned the fact that take a problem and turn it into an advantage. And that's what we learned. So you can learn something, <clears throat> but you've still got to have faith in yourself. You've still got to, and you've got to sell that, <clears throat> that idea, that motivation to people, other people, so that when people come, you know, if they're a bit doubtful or whatever, they, they feed off your energy, your, you know, the fact that you're not phased, why should they be? And, and then you, know, you grow, and it does, it does require a lot of like thinkers, people who will think in the same way and take a risk. And that's what, that's what entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs take a risk. They're not gambling, just taking a risk because they don't know the outcome. They can see what they would like it to be, but getting there is, is another thing. You know, it's not, <clears throat> if everybody could see where they want to be and get there and make a million or whatever it is, then everybody would, it'd be easy. But it's not. It's, what is easy is that if you like a challenge, then that's easy because uh, you have fun. And, you know, that's so important. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you've got to enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, it's not, it's not work. You, know, you, you go out to have fun. I, I, love, I could sit here and just listen to that. It's amazing. So, so inspiring to hear you say that, knowing the journey that you've been on. This episode is brought to you by Hux. Hux is a health company created to inspire you to find your daily edge. I've been trying Hux for the last few months and it's become my trusted health supplement of choice. And I love that its range of products can and for me should be used every day from wake until sleep. Hux consists of high quality potent supplements across four categories. Their superfood blend provides you with 17 superfoods, including vitamin A, B, C and D, and a hit of plant protein. The hydration tablets hydrate you quickly in unbelievably good flavors. Nootropics support those focus periods and long-term brain health. And finally, Hux's sleep products with award-winning ingredients like Levagen to support your recovery through deeper, more restorative sleep. I've been using superfood and hydration for the last few months and have noticed a drastic improvement in sustained energy and my sleep. In fact, having met the team, tried the products and seen the vision, I decided to become an early stage investor myself and I'm so excited to be a part of this journey. You'll be seeing loads more from Hux and I can't wait to see and hear from people being supported by the products. To get involved, visit huxhealth.com or at huxhealth on all socials and use the code TF20 for 20% off all products, including their subscription. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoy. I'm interested to know a, a couple of points. I'm, I'm going to ask the question about Nike and Adidas and competition in a minute, but something that just came up as you were speaking about that there. You are so determined to make it work. This is one of the things that probably stood out to me more than anything in the book. You were so determined to make it work that you eventually ended up essentially handing over all of your equity to the yeah. US part of the business. You, you maintained your stake in Reebok UK and International, but essentially gave away all of the equity in Reebok US. You kept, you had like, uh, on the, you got commission on sales and all that sort of stuff. But how did that feel to give away that, like as far as your ego and keeping your ego intact, how did you find that giving away to somebody else? <clears throat> well, I hope that ego is something that I don't have much of. I think I have determination and uh, um, uh, have that uh, willing, that 
requirement to, to succeed. But I hope it's not from ego. I hope it's from the, uh, um, from the passion, really, of, of Reebok. Because nobody knows Joe Foster. You know, who's Joe Foster? Don't know. But they know Reebok. Because it wasn't a question of pushing Joe Foster forward. It was a question of Reebok. Always a question of Reebok. How do you make it? You, know, you, you can stay a small company. And if I hadn't done certain things, we would probably not, Reebok would probably not be in business today. So when it, when it came to equity, yes. You know, an opportunity came, and that was aerobics. When aerobics came, the opportunity, the, the growth was massive, and it needed financing. So do you starve the company because you've not got the finances and then you lose the business, you lose the opportunity. Because if you don't take that business and feed it, it'll go somewhere else. Somebody else will come in and take it. So instead of Reebok being, well, becoming a woman's shoe, becoming aerobics, somebody else would have done that. And uh, it could have been just a nice thought that maybe we could have done it. But if you if you don't take those opportunities, and for me it wasn't a matter of uh, sort of thinking, well, <clears throat> we're going to grow into a massive company and I'll make a massive amount of money. No, it was how do we get Reebok to become number one? How, how do we can this taking this opportunity to get us to number one? So we managed to get a credit line from Stephen Rubin. So whilst you say we sold <clears throat> to America, no, the sale was to. Uh, Reebok International, and it still is a UK company. The brand is still owned in the UK. And so, uh, and Reebok USA was owned by the UK. 50, over 50, 55% was UK owned. It's now, it went public and now it's, and then it went to Adidas and now it's with ABG. <clears throat> but in, in those days, they this was still a, a UK company. And, uh, we got a credit line. Okay, you've got to surrender something. You surrender your, your ownership, but you get a credit line, which means, uh, and Stephen Rubin gave us the credit line. And when it got to 20 million in a very short time, <laughs> he was uh, even getting a bit worried. <laughs> but it just, just gave us that, that leap. So we could go. Um, I mean, we, we were. When, when we got into aerobics, we were a $9 million company. And then the year after, a $30 million company, and then $90 million, then $300 million, then $900 million. In, in five years, we've gone from almost zero to a billion. Right? And the biggest problem eventually was not money. The biggest problem was product. Where do you get product to go from $300 million to $900 million? Where do you get it? I mean, we're talking earlier about the fact that uh, Bob Anderson had said that Nike were number one, and they couldn't get the production that quickly. So tripling your business from 300 million to 900 million in one year, more or less one year, that, that required something and it required Nike to hit the wall. Nike would have been doing so well, growth, all of a sudden, well, they were over, overstocked, they got too much inventory uh, and they had to pull out of three factories in Korea, South Korea, just when we needed it. And that was another stroke of luck because we could go straight in there and we could satisfy that demand. I mean, there were some tough times. I had some tough times. I'd got 30 distributors, and America were 
really leading the, the charge, and they were feeding, and everybody else wanted aerobic shoes, but we were having to feed the American market. And I was having to tell the guys, look, sorry we can't deliver to our <laughs> other distributors, but we must not lose the American market. We must really keep feeding that and let it grow. And you'll, you'll get the benefits down the road. I know you're suffering now, but you'll get the benefits. So it was feeding that market to, to get it to that size. And then, of course, it flowed out all around the world. What's going through your mind when the company goes from nine million to a billion in five years? Like, what's what well, happened to you? It was a long time, five years. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. It can't go through your mind over five years. What <clears throat> what is really going through your mind is this is such an exciting time. We've really got something now, and it's, it's growing, growing, growing every day, every week, and into the years. You're running, you're charging, you're chasing, you're you're doing everything. You you don't you don't have time to stop and think it's coming at you because we weren't trying to uh, build the business nobody was going out selling shoes everybody was trying to get the product for the demand because the demand was coming at us so so much such a big demand and only when that tapers off and that that problem became the problem as we sort of approaching a billion everybody's thinking you know this isn't going to last forever this isn't this growth isn't going to keep on coming where do we go so it was a question, are we, are we just going to become a woman's shoe or are we becoming a sports uh, performance brand, which means covering sports? And so at that, but at that point, we had some money. <laughs> yeah, we had the ability to move to tennis and then to uh, uh, American football, basketball in particular. We, we had the money to do that. And we became number one. Mm. Yeah, we, we overtook Nike, we overtook Adidas and Reebok. That small woman's company become number one. Such an amazing story. So thank you for bringing me back around to the question about competition. I'm really fascinated to know as someone who played a lot of sport and was incredibly competitive in my my life, in sport, in business, even in school, with my with my friends, with my brother, with everyone, probably overly competitive. My relationship with competition has changed since I left my corporate job and went into a different environment and started to see what was more important to me. So I wonder... Where did competition benefit you when you're competing against Adidas initially and Nike in the US particularly? And then when you became number one, like did that change the way that you viewed competition and its benefits? I, I think uh, I think Reebok were not prepared to be number one. They were not prepared for that, but they got there. And it's like, you know, it's it's one thing pushing up the hill and getting to it. When you get to the top of the mountain, where do you go? There was a lot of oh, soul searching of because we were not known in too many other sports. Uh, the the grounding of the history of, say, somebody like Adidas, and, and even Nike had grown a bit broader by the time we got to the top. They were growing broad. <clears throat> I think if we'd have had more practice at selling and more practice at what do we do, that, those five years we were just trying to fill the bucket and those holes in the bottom, it was just like, keep going, keep going, keep going. You know, it was so so hectic. Uh, that nobody sort of sat down and thought, well, why don't we now branch out? You know, it's like, but how do you branch out when you're taking all your time to just keep up with the demand on aerobics? Mm. You know, how, how do you do it? So that that, that, that was a puzzle, really, um, for America, because that's where the growth was. And uh, Paul Feynman, he had to keep that growth going. So it, it was a difficult one. Uh, we, you know, we had meetings and talks on 
on, on the subject, but uh, the predominantly it was how do you satisfy this market? There's a robot market, this, and uh, <clears throat> so when when it when it comes to saying, well, you know, what is it like when you when you get to the top? Does it change? Yes, it changes because you you're beginning to say, well, we're here now, you know, we're in the stratosphere. There's nobody with us. We're, we're at the top. How do you stay there? And unfortunately, Reebok didn't stay there. You know, it's, uh, it, was, it was one of those things that to get into the other, um, to, into performance sports, two different people, different energy. You know, you, you've got to bring in different people then, who's people who know something about American football. And uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that it failed. It didn't fail at that time. But uh, I, I think, really, the biggest problem for Reebok at that time was finding the right people to run a corporate business. Because I didn't want to be part of corporate business. That's, that's, that's something different from the challenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, Arnold Martinez, who, who had left the company by that time, he left the company, and he came back for, I think it was Paul's 25th anniversary at uh, Reebok USA. And he addressed everybody by saying, problem with Reebok is uh, it's had more presidents than uh, a South African country, a South American country. And he said, no, let me refer further. It's had more president, presidents than all of the South American countries. <laughs> so I, I guess what he was saying is there was too much change at the top, too much. There was not enough stability of the people coming in. And uh, I don't think Paul found that they, for him, they didn't fit the bill. And Paul kept on going back in. Uh, and I don't think this did the company good. So somewhere at that point, they failed to get the magic, uh, let's keep going. That's, um, whereas I think Nike with Phil Knight at that point, they had that nice stable area. Although he ran into a lot of things with his, uh, his team. His <laughs> team wasn't always that. Uh, to work together did you ever speak with phil knight or the dazzler brothers did you ever have conversations with them when you were all on that competitive no path? I've, I've never met phil knight and i've never met the dazzler brothers i only met uh, one of the sons what was he called um one of the, the dazzlers uh horst horst dazzler by the time we were at, at a big we were well known by that time um addy dazzler had passed away and uh, I think Rudy Dassler also passed away. Um, and I never got to meet Phil Knight. I'm still waiting to uh, do that. And hopefully one of these days when we're over in America, I shall get to have a word with him. I know he spends his time in uh, um, Beaverton, I think it's bad in Beaverton, and otherwise he's in Florida. Wow. So, so I, I guess when the weather's not so good, he's, he gets down <laughs> to Florida. <laughs> and. Uh, because uh, Oregon, Oregon is, I think, a bit like Lancashire. It's very wet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been yeah. to Oregon. It's nice, though. It's nice. It is nice. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about purpose, that feeling of purpose, which is kind of almost, it kind of follows passion, I think. And you mentioned passion earlier about how we, how we can rid the ego if we focus on what we're passionate about because it changes the way that we see things. So do you think it was your purpose to be a shoemaker? You've got a fantastic story with, your grandfather particularly is incredibly innovative and in running the, the family business. And you, it sounds like you're kind of quite similar to him. Do you, does it, is there a feeling of a purpose or that this is like fate, you were meant to walk this path? 
I, I guess I guess I do believe in fate. I, I think the fate was there because uh, as, a, as a youngster, you don't think much of it. You know, the company makes running shoes, fine, athletic shoes. You, I eventually got into the company at 17. Uh, at 18, both Jeff and myself had to do national service. Mm -hmm. I think that gave us a different view on life. Because at that point you learn how to be self-sufficient. You, you don't, you're not sort of thinking, expecting your mother or your father or somebody to just provide whatever. You've got to look for opportunities, and you got you start to learn to take opportunities, and you learn learn a lot of different things. Uh, and it's when we came back, um, we both came back. We saw the company failure, uh, and I guess there was sort of a mixture between, do you want to be? Uh, making shoes, making sports shoes, be a sports brand. Is it a brand you're talking about? Um, just competing with uh, Adidas and uh, Nike. Um, we needed we needed something to do. You know, we could see the company was going to fail. And that way, if we had not done anything, I don't know, maybe I'd have been a postman or driving a bus or you name it. Yeah. And, and I don't think that fitted the bill quite as much as, well, you know, Let's let, let's do it ourselves. And you know, even when we left the business, we did not know that much about our grandfather and his business. We, you know, the talk was there. It was only when Reebok became a good size that we could then put a team on research. Mm -hmm. And we researched his history. And it's amazing history. And some of the stuff that he did was absolutely incredible. And, and, and he was an influencer. Definitely he was an influencer. So... Uh, what was the purpose? Purpose? I guess the first, initially the purpose was to have a job. <clears throat> you know, we, we'd grown up with a shoe factory, so it was a job. But as you've probably read in my book, I was a lousy shoemaker. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to be a shoemaker. Um, I, I guess my life was, uh, and I think also in the book, is the DNA of a, an improver. In other words, we wanted to go better, those steps better. And Jeff loved the factory. And, you know, we didn't. We never had a bad word together. And when you, when you think father and uncle would never speak together, and yet Jeff and I never had a bad word. Never. And I must have done some stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> I must have done a lot of stupid things. But he, he probably knew, well, at least we're moving forward and, you know, at least, at least we're keeping going. So leave it to him. So he wanted to run the factory, which is what he did. So for, for his purpose, he, he was happy. He was happy just manufacturing shoes, making shoes and running Sad thing is he died at the wrong, I say the wrong time, I suppose, when you die, it's never the right time, is it? But he died just as we got into America. And we had a small factory, but we needed lots of production. Barter said that they would help, but we needed to go to South Korea. At that point, Jeff would have headed a team to go to South Korea to work with the Koreans and make sure they got the package right, transfer everything. So he would have been looking after the product. He would have certainly been doing that. Whereas I had to get somebody else, and we, uh, but so that was a, a pretty sad time. But then, then the purpose, I, I guess, when he did die, I, I, I guess it probably redoubled my purpose, and that was to get Reebok to as big a company as we could get it, just to keep it going. We, you know, we'd, we'd got, we'd got some momentum. We just got into America. That was wow. That was something I'd been trying 11 years to do. And so we got that momentum. We were now moving. Our factory was more becoming just a small resource because the product itself had to come from somewhere else. And you know, we had to grow into a marketing company, not a, not a manufacturing company. We started manufacturing, but I, I guess I knew 
from an early age that really I didn't want to be stood by a machine, operating a machine. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you can do that, but uh, you 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 tend you tend to sort of drift off into thinking of other things because working machines or doing things by it becomes so automatic. It's like going out for a walk or a run. Usually you, you go for a run and you get back and think, huh, now where did I go? I don't remember now going that down that road, which I usually go there. Must have done. But your mind is on something else. It's it's you know, and this is this is a good thing about going running, is that you can just let your mind drift. And you go into your dreams, you go into your thoughts, uh, and you don't really you don't really realise what you're doing. Like a meditation, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Joe, is there anything you would change or anything that you regret about the journey? Is there anything to regret? Yeah. I think I think regrets really a waste of time. Uh, because what are you regretting? You're only looking back on on history and you can't change it. So having a regret, no. And you know, we became number one. We overtook Nike, we overtook Adidas. We were number one global footwear brand, sports footwear brand. What's to regret? Mm. <laughs> I could have made yeah, different decisions, gone in different ways and different directions. But when you become number one, I guess that's hard to uh, sort of regret what you've done. Mm. Yeah, yeah. People said, "Why do you do this?" Like, you know, you ask, "Why do you, why do you give your your equity? Why do you?" Yeah. Well, the equity because there was a mission. You know, I, I can s stop halfway up the mountain because I can't afford the the new gear that I need to get to the top, or we can aim for the top, and it doesn't matter because. You know, most of these people who had the equity have sort of gone away from the company now, but I'm still founder. You know, at the end of that day, I am still the founder. And having written the book, uh, it's amazing. I didn't write it to teach people how to do things. I just put down what we did. Mm. And now we're getting a lot of people who just love it because there are so many lessons in there. Mm. And it, we didn't start, I didn't start writing the book to tell people how to do things. <laughs> this is what we did. <laughs> and, uh, no, I mean, we've done London Business School and was at UCL, University College London. We've, yeah. we've been there to the MBA students. Wow. And, uh, you know, I mean, they usually get taught. First thing you do is your exit plan. Yeah. Then you look yeah. where we're seeding money and they do this. And they're saying to me, well, what was your exit plan? We didn't have an exit. <laughs> <laughs> no. We we didn't, you know. We had a mission, not an exit plan. And money, no. You know, all you had in those days were, were the banks, and the banks wanted uh, collateral, and we didn't have collateral. So it was a tough time in those early days. I mean, today there's so many ways of raising money. You get a good idea, you put a good story out there, and you can usually fund it. We had to go a tough way. It was a tough, to, you know, step by step. So. I, I think, you know, and people do say, what would young Joe do today? Well, young Joe would, uh, he would know the technology, everything about technology that he'd need to because that's where life is now. You know, products are there, okay, but technology, you've got to learn it. In fact, we, you know, we, we've just had two or three meetings. Our latest one was some really uh, strong people in the metaverse, the metaverse and uh, NFTs, um, they're dragging me into that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe in it? I, I'm beginning you? to. Yeah. I, and that's why if you're young now, 
know, it all comes from gaming. It, you know, the whole thing is sort of built on. <clears throat> you can, you can do something twenty four seven, never get hungry and never get tired, in the metaverse, and uh, it's where a lot of things are going now. So they, they let's say they, they metaverse, they're uh, NFTs and the crypto. So this whole thing is, yeah. It's coming together. Scary. I think it's scary. Um, it's very scary. It is indeed. I've actually just um, come off social media for a month because I know what it does to our brains, like to have that distraction with you all the time. Um, we really need to find a healthy balance between spending time on it and, and utilizing the platform, what it is, and finding the benefit of things like social media and in the future, the metaverse, etc., mm. and not getting completely overwhelmed by it and identifying with that version of ourselves. Right. But I, I mean, now you, you read about um, COVID didn't help because it sent a lot of people home. They're working from home. They start playing with the uh, social media and games. And now they're, they're becoming quite agoraphobic. They, they can hardly go to the door <clears throat> because they're so used to being on their own and living in this sort of artificial world that going to the door is scary because they're not used to meeting people. So you're quite right. You've got to get a mix. And as you know, you would never have got Reebok to where it was without going and meeting people and speaking to them and shaking hands and communicating in person. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it would have been nice to have Zoom. Mm, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. <1958. laughs> it would have been nice. Um, because Zoom, I think Zoom has been great for uh, for Shoemaker. And we, yes. uh, I, we're, we're sitting next to each other, but the number of uh, Zooms that we've had, we're well over 100 and yeah. all around the world australia west coast america you name it yeah and it's just it is almost like this yeah it's amazing yeah i have to apologize for julie for pestering to do a face-to-face -face interview because <laughs> <laughs> i just it's my preference right so. well that's okay <laughs> yeah, we're happy. Thumbs up. <laughs> um you said there wasn't an exit plan was there a, was the mission to be the number one shoe was that the overall mission I don't think that was a mission. I think a mission was to be successful, well, to get people to know Reebok, like Reebok, love Reebok. And, and, I, and I think getting people to love the brand was more important than becoming number one. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people do love it now. And, uh, you know, we talk to people now, and, uh, and a lot of them in America in particular, who are a little bit older than you probably, and they say, oh, I remember my first pair of Reeboks, Reebok Pump too expensive we couldn't buy them you know we had to save up we had to, oh, and then when we got our Reebok pump this was great and they, they remember D Brown sort of thing dunking from the center line yeah. and when he and then he bent down and pumped his shoes yeah. up <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> marketeer's dream yeah isn't it? absolutely I mean those sort of images stay and then because this was when they were young right now they still have that love for the brand yeah and uh, okay for whatever reason, it was sold to Adidas. And Adidas, they I, mean, I, I don't know what it is. A lot of people do this when they buy a brand or, the, or they buy something, they, try, they change something. Mm. And they changed the silhouette and they changed the lettering for the name and it went nowhere. So, okay, you know, they paid three and a half billion dollars for, for the company. I, I guess they were entitled to do well, you will when you bought it you can't tell tell them what to do mm. it's so different to you know how i remember it with shaquille o'neal with the Sha shaq gnosis yeah. shoe and obviously he's part of abg like alan iverson these iconic figures that 
really changed the way people mm. view brands and like get access to certain groups of people. That's right. It's amazing. Even in football, I know it was you know it didn't happen for long, but you had Ryan Giggs. We had Ryan Giggs. For we a did period, yeah. didn't you? And yeah, well, we had one or two top footballers at the time. Yeah. Did you have Henri at one stage? Yes. Yeah, Henri. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Did we have Teddy Sheringham or not? I'm not. I don't remember who uh, who the people were. Yeah. But, uh, lots uh, of people that you got. But so. we got lots of people. Yeah. So, and it was a shame that we didn't sort of keep it going. Where did the Bolton Stadium sponsorship fall in your sort of high points on the journey? That was exciting. That was good. That, bring that it back good. home. I mean, everybody now is still, um, it's now the University of Bolton Stadium. Yeah. Uh, it, it went through Macron, things like that. But everybody still refers to it as the, the Reebok. Mm. You know, well, we'll meet you at the Reebok, even though it's called Middlebrook. Yeah. <laughs> we'll meet you at the Reebok. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I think we were so lucky with, uh, with getting the name. You know, that uh, it's so, it's so sort of easy to say Reebok. It just, mm. you know, a couple of syllables and uh, and people like University of Bolton now it doesn't sound yeah. very much. Even how you change the name from Mercury Sport to Reebok, like all of these, it, it all sounds like it's meant to be. All of these things, they sound yeah. meant to be. Well, it's quite, I mean, the, the story's in the book and it is a story on itself that, yes. And I, I was only eight years old and during 1943, when I got that dictionary, I won a race. Because like COVID, you couldn't go anywhere, you know, but there were local events. And I won a 60-yard race, and I went up and collected my prize. And, you know, they gave me a dictionary. And I'm saying, dictionary? Where's the football? You know, what, what do I need with a dictionary? You know, it was the middle of the war, hardly any education going on anyway. But, uh, and it was only, again, in 1960 when we wanted a name, and my book was sat there. And I thought, mm, you know, we'd, we'd sort of have what should we call it? Because oh, we had to rename the company. You know, we, we thought of Falcon. Oh, that's a good name. Cheetah, Sports. And I, I just, my book, you know, and I thought, I like that letter R. That, that, that was the beginning. I like the letter R. And I opened my American Webster's Dictionary at R and thumbing through it came across Reebok. R to believe be okay. What is that? Well, it's a small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle, that's it. So that's how we got the name. We put it up there, and that, that, that was that was Reebok. But so, you know, lucky I won that race, and probably lucky they gave me a dictionary and not a football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, meant to be. Joe, can I ask you about? I've got a few quotes that you, that you wrote down. I'll just pick one or two before right. we, we wrap this up. But you mentioned your brother already. Yes. You just mentioned the war then as well, and and there's some really moving parts in your book about when you were a kid and, and the war right. was taking place. And of course, towards the end of the book as well, you talk about your your daughter as well. Yes. You said in there that death taught you to just get on with it. Well, there's nothing else you can do, is there? You know, you you uh, it's sad. These things that happen, you wish you could change that. You know, you talk about regret. Uh, the regret is that I lost two very important people in my life, and uh, but you can't you can't regret about it. You can't do anything about it. It happens, and these things, you know, some very well sad things happen. But I guess the best thing that happened for me was just getting on with it, because at least you uh, it takes your mind away of. What could I have done? You, you, you almost blame yourself for, by saying, "What could I, 
I'm sure I could have done something. I'm sure we could have changed that. But you can't. I'm not a doctor. I'm even a lousy shoemaker. So, you know, I w but I guess it's the, the fact that I like going forward. I, you can see something happening. And like I say with Jeff, it probably redoubled my efforts to, to make it work in, in the hope that, well, you know, if he is looking down on it, he could enjoy what he sees. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the regret, regret is on the, that he didn't see it. I regret that he didn't see it. You know, that is, that is probably the, the only thing. I can't change that. Um, but it was so sad that, because uh, at the time we'd just gone in America, who, who, was, who was to know we were going to be so successful? Nobody, you know, it, it was just, we were there and then it happened and we grew. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's difficult to say that, yes, with death, you can't do much about it except get on mm. and work. Mm. And, uh, well, just hope that uh, what life they had, they enjoyed. Mm. Amazing. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> the other one that I wrote down, another quote you said, which is, most people are scared to go back down the wrong mountain so they continue climbing the wrong one. Well, a lot, a lot of people try and make things work when they can see it. It's not working. They're just trying to make it work. <clears throat> I mean, these days, at least people are sort of understanding what the meaning of pivoting is. Uh, you know, you, you change. And, and it doesn't matter whether you... If you have to take a step back, it's only to get perspective. Uh, but don't keep on pushing something that isn't working. Uh, you've got to find a way around it. It's like any problem you get. You're, you're better off trying to find what's the advantage. Well, the advantage maybe is getting off that mountain and going up the next one, because maybe the next one doesn't have the same problems. You know, if we had tried to go, we, we made football boots uh, in our early days. You know, we made some football boots at the factory. Uh, we were talking earlier about the fact that we made, for most of the league, the, the rugby league, we made the, the rugby boots. And, okay, but that's a limited size of market, you know. Nothing like the size of uh, football, or the Americans call it soccer. Now, that's immense. But if we'd have tried to go up that route, we wouldn't have got very far, because Adidas were already there. And, you know, people do ask, well, what are your competition with Nike and Adidas? I think really won't... If, if you're trying to grow your business, it's not really looking at your competitors. Know what they are, know where they are, but look for the white space. If you can find the white space, you, you, you can actually do something different. And that's why when Reebok found aerobics, that's why it was so essential to really make it happen. Because, you know, the other guys were just looking at this saying, yeah, it's women. Uh, be a fad, be over with. And, you know, six months, 12 months, uh, that'd be done. Well, after about five years, they decided that they'd better get into it if they could do. And, but they could only get a small slice at that time because Reebok owned it. You know, we became known. And what it did change is it changed footwear. Normally footwear is made out of fairly firm leather. And it takes a bit of breaking in. It took, you probably won't know going back to early sports uh, shoes, firm leather, and they took a lot of breaking in. Mm. Reebok introduced soft leather. Mm. And that soft leather, now, if it's made, if you're, sports footwear is made out of leather it's usually the soft leather that um that Reebok developed so you know that was a major development yeah. which now <clears throat> you're only talking about the leather I mean we did develop a lot of other things but uh, yeah. I mean but 
what stuck? Well, the pump. I mean, those, those, <laughs> those things. But they, these are marketing things. Yeah. And a lot of people, um, we visited a shoe, well, length shoes. They, they, they're trying to be different. They're going more traditional. And uh, Julie has a pair of those shoe boots on now. But uh, I, can't, I can't wear those anymore. At my age, my, you know, my feet, if you try and push them in the wrong direction, <laughs> everything goes. Okay, I've, I've got a new knee. I've got a new hip. So I've got to be much more careful. But the nice, soft, comfortable I suppose, really, in my early days, I would have been going to work in your slippers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because they're nice, they're comfortable, they they bend the way my feet bend. You know, I don't have to work on them. But, um, so Reebok brought that to the sports footwear, and uh, I, I remember the uh, the advertising. <laughs> Paul did this. He uh, when we went into tennis, and we went in with this nice, soft, supple leather. Um, Otherwise, tennis shoes, they, they hold the shape. They, you could hardly bend them. You, you eventually brought them in. And his advert was, um, I guess, if you don't think that these are the best tennis shoes you've ever worn, we'll give you your money back and a can of balls, mm. tennis balls. And the strap line was, Reebok puts its balls on the line. <laughs> 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 Which was rather good at the time. Yeah. I remember Paul saying, Joe, we're going to have to buy a lot of tennis balls because we may get a lot of people uh, sending those back. Yeah. And they got two cases, I think, about maybe, maybe I think 100 boxes of tennis or 200, whatever. He only, he only get, went through half a box. So, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hardly anything came so back. I watched King Richard and yeah. I didn't realise, but at the end of the film, Venus gets her, her sponsorship deal and she gets on becomes a professional and, and the deal was with Reebok. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. amazing. That's it. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of deals out there and there's still some deals out there now. And and I guess now that uh, Reebok are with ABG, ABG are going to do one big thing for Reebok in the next 12, 18 months. That is visibility. Mm. We're going to see Reebok now uh, from being in the shadow of uh, Adidas. Yeah. It's going to come out because ABG have done deals around the globe with about eight different really big retail franchises. And now Reebok will be seen all over. Incredible how much you'll see it. How much are you involved in it now? At the moment, um, we're still involved with the archive, but not with ABG at this moment, although we've met one or two of the uh, new people. In fact, um, JD, <clears throat> JD Sports, which is Pentland, which comes back to Stephen Rubin, mm -hmm. they... Uh, I believe they're about a seven billion uh, pound business now, and they they've just picked up. So sort of it's not exclusive, but a big deal to uh, work with Reebok for the UK and Europe and North America. Wow! <clears throat> so uh, that's big. In fact, I exchanged some emails with uh, with Stephen, and Stephen said he, he he's sorry that he wasn't able to sort of um, be with Reebok as it grew, and he would have loved to do more with Reebok. But he said he never he never believed he'd be probably one of the major um, major retailers of Adidas and Nike, one of the biggest customers mm. as he is now. Yeah. Big customer. Yeah. So I didn't know JD were in America. Well, we didn't, but they bought um, Finish Line Sports. Ah, yeah, bought Finish Line. Massive retailer. Yeah. yeah. So whether they rebrand Finish Line as JD, I don't know. Right. I think they probably should do. I think yeah, well, they finish line, line by JD, something like yeah, that. Yeah, because they've yeah. got quite a good brand already. Over there. They know, like, every 
shopping mall, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks, Joe. Okay, we do the same three questions at the end of every episode. Okay. Quick, quick fire questions. Quick fire ones, okay. yes. Right. So one thing that you're excited about, it might be something you recently discovered. It, it could be anything, however you interpret the question. One thing you're particularly excited about right now. Well, I'm excited at the way that um, Shoemaker has sort of caught the imagination uh, and is progressing and has sort of got me into a position now where we, in fact, we, we don't stop uh, traveling now till about March of uh, 23. We're all over. We, uh, we go to Africa. Um, we're going to North America. We're going to South America. And that's a big tour. Which that, is, for the book tour, that is. For the book, yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah for the book. It's, nice. uh, so <clears throat> we're in demand. So that's, that's exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Honoured to have, have you for, for today. It's great. Uh, one habit you would encourage all listeners to, uh, to practice daily, to, it might be to improve their performance, but something that you've valued in your life that is a habit. Well, I, I think the, the best habit anybody can pick up is to get up in the morning and feel happy and feel as though it's next. Feel the excitement of the day. You know, feel it's a good day. Don't get up and say it's going to be a lousy day, even if you know it's going to be a lousy day. No, how can we make something good? So it's optimism. You've got to be, you know, get that feeling of optimism. It's, there's something good there somewhere. So, you know, as a habit, yes, get up and do something good. Mm, okay, amazing. I love that. Last one of these three. So imagine there's two versions of yourself, Joe. So there's two of you in this world. Take yourself back to a particularly difficult time, a challenging time. Could be any one of the obstacles or stories we've spoken mm -hmm. about today already. What's the difference between the Joe that pushes through, overcomes, and is the person who sat opposite me today, you know, created Reebok to, as we know it today, and the Joe that wouldn't have done those things? I mean, as one person, it's hard to imagine yourself as the other person. Um, <clears throat> because uh, I'm, if, if there's two of us, uh, I'd have been kicking the other guy. Come on, get up. Let's move on. Yeah, you know, change your attitude. I, I think I'd have been, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have been falling out. I, I would have been pushing. Come on, get on with it. You know, it's like, I never had to push Jeff. If you say Jeff might have been my older other person, um, he was happy doing what he was doing. He didn't need to do what I was doing. But whatever, whatever you do, do something that makes you happy, makes you have fun. So I'd, I'd, you know, if this guy wasn't having fun, I'd be really annoyed with him. Not annoyed as to be sort of saying, oh, go your own way. No, come on, you've got to change. You know, we've got to get on this. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's difficult. People do ask the question of what, you know, what would the young Joe be doing now? Like I say, I, I'd be making sure I knew everything I could about technology, where it's going, the metaverse, all that. Got to know that so you, because it's moving in that direction. And it's, it's good to be sort of, if you want to be in there, or if you don't want to be in there, you must know about it. And uh, you know, so that's it. So, yeah, tough. I, I mean, it's like saying you, you're also, also you person, the other person with the opposite sort of thinking. It's hard to say, because, you know, when, you've, when you have a certain sort of uh, motivation in life, and, and I can put it down to DNA, uh, I guess that DNA missed out on my father and uncle. But it came from grandfather, probably. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure, real pleasure. And uh, thank you for the memories as a child as well, like waiting for the Reebok Classics to come out in different colorways and <laughs> as a big part of my youth. So thank you yeah. so much. Well, you know, the Reebok Classic still has a soul on it. 
that I designed in 1976. Mm. Still the same sole. Wow. Just tweaked a little bit. But, yeah. Apart from that, I'm surprised. <laughs> timeless. Timeless. Joe, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. You have reached your destination. Hey, it's Mark Whittle. Thanks so much for watching or listening. It's so great to have you a part of the Take Flight movement. Subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, video and audio, to be the first to see new episodes and new conversations with the greatest minds in the world. Follow me at markwittle underscore tf on all social platforms and visit takeflightworld.com to join our growing community of hustlers, performers and go-getters. I can't wait to see you next time. Until then, stay positive, stay motivated, and of course, take flight.